Well, thank you guys um, this morning. So um, today, for, for many people, it's a day of rejoicing. Uh, whether that was just your little bit, uh, maybe you have some hangover from our Christian uh, party, our fiesta last night. Um, it's good to see that the Yorks can make it to something this morning because Alabama won, so we're glad for that this morning. Or maybe you saw Diamond Rio, who I have no idea anything about. Um, so um, wherever you are in life, hopefully there was some celebration for you this morning. Um, but ultimately, we have come here to celebrate one, and his name is Jesus. And that's what we're all about. We're dedicated to the person and work of Jesus Christ this morning. So thank you guys uh, for gathering with us and beholding Jesus. Today we're going to be coming from the Gospel of Matthew. Um, specifically, I'm going to work my way toward Matthew chapter 2, which Maddox read for us today. But to lay some groundwork, you need to stay with me, hang with me. I promise I am going somewhere and hopefully we'll go there rather quickly uh, today. The Gospel of Matthew, written by a man named Matthew, who was a tax collector, a traveler with Jesus, one of the disciples of Jesus. He was an eyewitness of the things of Christ. And in that, we often forget that in the Gospel writings, uh, that many of them are written to a specific person or group of people in hopes of convincing them or persuading them to trust in Jesus. They are evangelistic tracts, if you will. Now, they have eternal significance. They are inspired by the very Word of God. But when Matthew is sitting there writing um, to these Jewish people in hopes to convince them, he is probably not thinking about that in 2,000 years there will be people in a place called America who will be reading my letters. That's God's work in manifesting itself in the spreading of the gospel and his ultimate intent. So Matthew is, is writing this evangelistic letter aimed primarily at Jewish people hoping to persuade them to recognize Jesus as the promised Messiah inside of the Old Testament. They have been told for now thousands of years that the King is coming, and Matthew, among others, is convinced that Jesus is that King. It doesn't mean that there, has, there isn't any significance for us as Gentiles. Uh, we will see that rather quickly um, inside of this. But the primary reason was for Jewish brothers and sisters to convert to Jesus. Jesus is shown inside of the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, to be the Messiah. That salvation has come to the nations and also to the Jews Therefore, it has also come to us as well. After the resurrection, Jesus has this really cool line in the Gospel of Luke when he tells his disciples after the death, burial, and resurrection, he looks at them in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, and he says to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything was written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So at the end, before Jesus ascends to the Father to prepare us a place, he tells them, hey, hey, you guys, you know all those, those earlier books that you've been taught, that you've been memorized? They're, they're all about me. Okay. Now this morning, as I can tell on your faces, some of you who are asleep, Others of you are awake. 
that that is not very shocking to you. But for these first disciples, that would have been a, a huge blow to our understanding of things. They would have been knocked down by, by much of what Jesus was saying when he was saying that all of the Old Testament, what the prophets spoke about, what the Psalms are ultimately about, that they are ultimately about me. And Matthew takes this profound information from Jesus and centers his entire life and letter around Jesus being the foretold Messiah, the foretold King in the Old Testament. And that is why if you've ever read through the Gospel of Matthew, or if you remember us going through the Gospel of Matthew a few years ago, that over and over and over and over and over again, Matthew quotes the Old Testament. Why? One, because it points toward Jesus. And two, he's trying to reach Jews with the hope and the message of Jesus. And what do the Jews know? The Old Testament. They need to understand that it is all pointing towards Jesus. Looking at the meta-narrative, see, uh, of, the, the meta-narrative, meta-narrative of the Scripture, we, we learn and quickly see that, again, that it is all pointing about, it is all pointing towards Jesus. It is all pointing toward the person and work of Jesus. This Jesus, he is the king. He is the king of kings. Jesus has no term limits on his authority. He is king. He has always been and will always be. It is sin, Satan, and death that have blinded humanity and led us to an adulterous affair with counterfeit kings. Like our biblical family, We are prone to wander, aren't we? We are prone to drift towards submitting to the rulers of this sinful kingdom instead of submitting to Jesus. My aim this morning, if you're wondering what um, I'll often say to um, Justin when he was first learning how to preach, is like, man, you've got to figure out what your sermon in a sentence is. Everything needs to be nailed down to one sentence. And some of you are like, just tell us the sentence and we'll go to lunch, all right? I'm going to tell you what the sentence is, what the sermon in the sentence is this morning, is my aim this morning is for us to consider where our hope and allegiance, is it in the counterfeit kings and kingdoms of this world, or is it in the promised king of kings, Jesus? Okay? Is your hope and allegiance in the counterfeit kings and kingdoms of this world, of which you may be one? Or is it in the promised King of Kings, Jesus? So, if you don't have up, open your device. If you don't have open a Bible, I want you to get that out. I want you to follow along with me. Again, appease me. You could be looking at Facebook, playing tic-tac-toe, minesweeper. We can go far back as snake if you want to on your Nokia phone. All right? But I want to show you through the Scripture the importance of understanding that Jesus is the promised King. We see this very quickly inside of the Gospel of Matthew. We've seen that the promised King, number one, is from the line of Abraham and is a blessing to the nations. This is first seen in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. But Matthew, in Matthew chapter 1, in the very first verse of Matthew chapter 1, what does he say? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of who? Abraham. 
We often like to skip over the genealogy, and yet there is great wealth of information and understanding um, from what Matthew and obviously the Holy Spirit is trying to say. He is speaking to these people who hold Abraham as Father Abraham, the beginning of this great nation of Israel, the father of the Jews, that Jesus is in the family tree of their own father, Father Abraham. And so we see that in Genesis chapter 2 that the, the, the coming Messiah will be from the seed of Abraham and that he will be a blessing to the nations. And we see this inside of the Gospel of Matthew. The next thing that we see is that the promised king is a son of David. We first see this promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 16. But we see this accomplished and fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus inside of, again, Matthew chapter 1, where he says, son of David, right? And then he will go on in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. We will often see Jesus as being the what? The son of David. For the Messiah to be the Messiah, and for the king to be the king, he must come through Abraham, he must come through David, and immediately we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises. But Matthew doesn't stop there. Matthew continues, the promised king would be born of a virgin. This is first said in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that the coming Messiah would be born of a virgin. And automatically, we're not even out of chapter 1 yet, but in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, what do we learn? We learn this very truth, that behold the virgin, this is verse 23, behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. The story, the familiar story that we all know is about this young teenage girl who finds herself um, conceived or pregnant with the, by the very hand of God, that she is a virgin, she has not been with a man, and yet the Holy Spirit has placed his, his seed, his personhood, inside of the womb of this teenage girl. It's prophesied, foretold hundreds, if not thousands of years before the very birth of Jesus, that this is what's going to happen. We see, again, if you go into chapter 2 of the, the Gospel of Matthew, which we will in just a second, it says the promised king would be born in Bethlehem. This is first told, though, in the book of Micah. The book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, foretells that the Messiah will come from Bethlehem. Who else was born in Bethlehem? David was. All right? And in Matthew chapter 2, we learn in verse 1, follow along with me, what does it say? Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And then the last thing that we see here, up into the second chapter, and I could go into many more if we kept going through the book, but since we're going to stop at chapter 2, this is where I'm going to stop for today. It says that the promised king would flee to Egypt for safety. This is also a fulfillment of prophecy. What is the prophecy? When was it given? It was given in the book of Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. Where is it fulfilled in the Gospels and in the life of Jesus? Well, Matthew tells us it's in chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, that after the wise men leave, right, that 
in order to escape Herod's reign and his decree of death upon every child in Bethlehem, every male child in Bethlehem under the age of two, where does Mary and Joseph go? They could have just probably went around the corner. They could have went to another village. But they travel and travel and travel and travel to the land called Egypt. We see that in in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. So, for hundreds, again, if not thousands of years before Jesus was laid in a manger, God had spoken, God had promised his people that in the midst of terrible days, in the midst of days of slavery, in the midst of days of bondage and of death and days of exile and days of wandering, that one day God himself would leave his throne and come to them. But that they must not lose hope as they eagerly wait for him. On the first Sunday of Advent, we light a candle, a purple candle historically. And in that purple candle, it represents typically two things. It represents the hope of Christ, but also to signal and to remind us that we are eagerly waiting. Eagerly waiting. Now, we'll see how this is connected to the Christmas story. Why? Because over and over again, our, our biblical heritage, our biblical family, what do they do? They lose hope. They're constantly losing hope. And, and what makes them lose hope is often the amount of time in which they are waiting. And so do we. I mean, if you experience this any time that you go to the DMV, right? You're wondering at, at any moment the end of the world could take place if I do not get through this line, right? We hate to wait. And the longer we hate to wait, the, the, the less amount of hope do we, ha- we have. We become hopeless in the wait. See, there's a war going on in the hearts of men. A fight between trusting a promise and personal preservation. Will we trust God? Or will we try to be God? Who serves who? To answer this, we got to go back often in order to go forward. How many of you guys remember, again, Father Abraham had many sons, right? Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of you. So are you. Father Abraham, he had a son named Isaac. And if you remember back in Genesis chapter 25-ish, that, that Isaac, he falls in love with a woman named Rebekah. Now, I've already told you that the Messiah would one day come from Abraham That means Abraham has to have a son, and from that son will come somebody, come somebody, come somebody, come somebody, and eventually Jesus shows up on the scene. But by the time we get to Genesis chapter 25, uh, Isaac has fallen in love with Rebekah, but there's something really important about Rebekah, and sad, is that she is a barren woman. I believe that it said that Isaac is in his 40s by this age. They have not had a son to carry on the legacy and the lineage of this family tree that will immediately or one day get to Jesus. 
And so Isaac, being a man of God, begins to pray for his wife. And in praying for his wife, pleads with the Lord and able to open up her, her barren womb so that he and she can have a child. And lo and behold, God answers the prayer. And Rebecca becomes pregnant with a child. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 25. We're going to read a portion of Scripture there that is really crazy. This is where I hope like young people and kids and maybe even adults will just get kind of mesmerized by the, the coolness, if I can use that word, of Scripture. So he has prayed, and then look at what happens here. I'm going to begin reading in verse 22. So she becomes pregnant, and it says in verse 22 of chapter 25, the children struggle together within her. So not only is she going to have one son, she's going to have twins. The children struggle together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? Sound like any of us, when there's a war going on within? Maybe it's not even pregnancy, but there's an internal fight that's taking place. And you begin to ask God and ask the Lord, man, why is this happening to me? Like if it happens to so-and-so, you're like, oh yeah, they deserve that. <laughs> Bring it on to them. But if it's happening to you, you're asking the question, why is this happening to me? And it continues on. So she went to inquire of the Lord. She's pleading with the Lord. She's asking the Lord. And the Lord says to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. And one shall be stronger than the other. And the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau, which means red. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name is called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter and a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved, Isaac loved Esau, excuse me, because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. So what do we see inside of this scripture? We see immediately before she even gives birth to these two brothers, Jacob and Esau, that even within the womb that these brothers are at war with each other. That there's a fight taking place inside of them, inside of her womb. This becomes one of the major themes inside of Genesis, specifically Genesis 25 through 36. As we see these brothers over and over and over again at, in conflict with one another, Esau hated Jacob, hated him. And there's some reasons for that, and we can't get all up in, into all of those nuances here this morning. 
But as we see this fighting occurring for generations, I mean, for years and years and years, the fighting between these brothers happens. And yet by the end of Jacob and Esau's life, they, they somewhat make some sort of peace by the time of their deaths. However, the descendants of Jacob and the descendants of Esau carried on the Hatfields and the McCoys. They could not stand each other. And though inside of the book of Deuteronomy, God even tells them not for the Israelites, not to hate the people of Esau, known as the Edomites, that they just went their separate ways. But yet within themselves, they could not help it. Because of their sinful nature, these two nations, the nations of Israel, if you're under Jacob and one of his descendants, you're called an Israelite. You're a Jewish person. If you're a descendant of Esau, you end up being called an Edomite. And both of those generations or those groupings of people could not stand each other. Even to the point that if a Jew was trying to go through Edomite land and Edomite territory, that they wouldn't let them. They, they were constantly, constantly at war with each other. The Israelites began to worship Yahweh more fervently, and we see all of that kind of cyclical motion of them worshiping them not, worshiping them not. The Edomites began to worship pagan gods, and so this just began to be a uh, forever struggle between these two nations. You have the people of God, the Israelites, the Jews. They were the people of the promise. And then you have the Edomites. Now, what's interesting is, is if you skip forward to the book of Ezekiel, God is going to say something about the Edomites. In Ezekiel chapter 35. Ezekiel chapter 35. So if you go to the prophets, it's a book there called Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 35 is where I'm going to be reading. Well, by their pagan worship... And because they were never at peace with God's chosen people, God begins to have major problems and issues as well with the Edomites. And listen to what he says. Listen to the scorching, wrathful tongue of our God. He says this in chapter 35. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face against Mount Seir. What is Mount Seir? That is an Edomite kind of like place. Right? It's a representation of their nation. And prophesy against it and say to us, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Mount Seir. And I will stretch out my hand against you, and I will make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay your cities waste, and you shall become a desolation, and you shall know that I am the Lord, because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity. And at the time of the final punishment, therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will prepare you for blood, and, your, and blood shall pursue you, because you did not hate bloodshed. Therefore, blood shall pursue you. I will make Mount Seir a waste and a desolation, and I will cut off from it all who come and go, and I will fill its mountains with the slain on your hills and on your valleys and in your, your ravines. Those slain by the sword shall fall. I will make you a perpetual desolation, and your city shall not be inhabited. 
then you will know that I am the Lord. Because you said, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we shall take possession of them, although the Lord was there, therefore, as I live, declares the Lord, I will deal with you according to the anger and the envy that you showed because of your hatred against them. And I will make myself known amongst them when I judge you, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. I have heard all the revilings and uttered against the mountains of Israel, saying, They are laid desolate. They are giving us to devour. And you magnified yourselves against me with your mouth and multiply your words against me. I heard it. Thus says the Lord God, while the whole earth rejoices, I will make you desolate as you rejoice over the inheritance of my house of Israel because it was desolate. So I will deal with you. You shall be desolate, Mount Seir, and all of Edom, all of it. They will know that I am the Lord. I I don't want to read too much into Scripture here, but I, I think it's safe to say that God does not like these people. Would you agree with me? If you go back to the Genesis passage, what was the promise given to Rebecca? The older, the one who is deserving of the right, Esau, He would serve the younger, Jacob. That the Edomites, that they would serve Israel. And yet they refused to do it. And they were constantly making bloodshed, constantly declaring war. There was this constant struggle that started way back inside of a mother's belly that was continuing for hundreds of years. This war, this fight. Now, let's go back to Matthew. In Matthew chapter 1, follow along with me. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of who? Jacob. So we see in the genealogy of Jesus, and all week, I was even talking to Laura this morning. I preached my sermon to her in like five minutes because I knew she wasn't going to be here. You're not that lucky. But I, I, I really struggled to preach Christmas. I really do. I really struggle to preach Easter. I know that you're all like, man, you shouldn't be a preacher then. But I really struggle with the familiarity that we have of these stories. And literally in the last 24 to 48 hours, I felt like the God just really spoke to me. And I'm hoping, I'm just hoping that some of my passion, and if not my passion, um, even more so will become your passion with what I'm about to share with you. Because it has been just so comforting. It's been a measure of grace inside of my life to know so much familiarity about this story, and yet by God to show me some things in his grace, and I hope that that transfers to you. Jesus, son of Abraham. Jesus, son of Isaac. Jesus, Son of Jacob, Jesus, son of David, 
Jesus was a what? He was an Israelite. He was not an Edomite. His legacy is that he is Jewish. His his family tree, for him to be the Messiah, for him to be the king, he must come through this lineage, and he does not come through the Edomite son. He does not come through Esau. But he comes through Jacob. Jesus is an Israelite. Jesus is the younger brother. Now, Jesus is the older brother, too. That's a different story. Okay? That's the cool thing about Jesus. He can be what we are not. But in this story, Jesus is the younger brother. He is the Israelite. He is the Jew. But where's the older brother? He's here too. And we often skip over it. See, there are prophecies in the Bible that are just straight up. She will be a virgin, right? Like one of these things is not like another. That's quickly to determine, okay? But there are other prophecies in Scripture that are types. They're types. And that's why we have to be students of God's Word. Now, let's go. Matthew chapter 2, where Maddox read for us. In Maddox chapter 2, or Maddox chapter 2, that's funny. (laughs) Yeah, that's an apocryphal gospel, which makes for great bathroom reading and then to be thrown away. Love you, though, Maddox. In Matthew chapter 2, follow along with me. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1, we'll start 1 through 6. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east of Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard that he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him, and assembling of all the chief priests and scribes and the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For as it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, Judah, excuse me, excuse me, um, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Immediately in chapter 2, we meet the physical king of the Jews. We meet a man named Herod. He's known, if you know anything about history, he is, he is known as the man named Herod the Great. Herod is a really interesting historical figure. He was an Olympian who eventually convinced Caesar to allow him to be the king of the Jews in order to approve the relationship between the Romans, who the Jewish people were now in captivity to. They were in control of the Jews. He was a brilliant, brilliant man. The, the roads, his, the, the amazing buildings, the swimming pools, the aqueducts, the, the way in which he did things in all of the kingdom of Judah is, is, there's no comparison to what this man did. Literally, there wasn't a port in, in a biblical city named Caesarea. There wasn't one. 
and he has one built. One of the most common statements about King Herod was that King Herod, he moves mountains. Because literally, he decided about six miles from Jerusalem, there was this flat land, and he wanted to show his prowess, he wanted to show his power and his significance. And so he had all of his slaves and all the people in this community where there was a flat piece of land to build a physical mountain. And then on top of that mountain, built a fortress named the Herodian. It's believed that's where he was buried. And you can read about the Herodian and all the crazy things. It's three miles from Bethlehem. It's six miles from Jerusalem. And it used to be a flat piece of farmland that now there is a physical mountain. This is beyond Tonka trucks, right? This is before bulldozers. This is before any of those things. This is like one bucket, one scoop, one wagon at a time. And this man in the ancient world physically and really made a mountain. And that mountain is still there. And the Herodian, the ruins of the Herodian, is still there to this day. This is Herod. Herod sought power. In some physical sense, the Herodian could even cast a shadow onto Bethlehem. He, he wanted power at all costs. He wanted his name to, to, to live forever. He wanted to be worshipped throughout history. He was ambitious, and this ambition drove him crazy. He craved power so much that he was in constant state of paranoia. He was constantly freaking out. This paranoia... Anytime that he felt like someone was plotting against him and his authority, he would have them killed. It's believed to be thousands of people that he ended up having to be killed because he thought somebody was coming to come against him. Feeling his wife's brother was coming against him, he had her drowned. When his wife found out that, that she, what he had done, she was so upset that he began to feel like she was coming against him. So she, he had her killed as well. After he had killed her, because he was so tormented by what he had done and he had killed his one true love, he became even more insane. After his execution, he wanted even more power, and yet it led him to be even more mad. When it was all said and done, he had killed her, several of her family members, and even two of his own sons, because he felt like they were plotting against him to take over his throne. On his deathbed, he once said, No one will mourn in Judah when I die. So in order for him to be mourned, he, he told his kids, I want you to get a bunch of Jewish leaders, and you're going to put them in this Colosseum. And at the moment that it is broadcast that I am killed, I want you to kill every one of those daddies. Kill every one of those leaders, so that when I die, there will be weeping in Judah over death. Now, by the grace of God, once he died, his two kids did not follow through with that. They did not follow through with his dad, their daddy's 
last wish. So by the time we get to Matthew chapter 2, Herod is in his 70s, He's, which is really old for a person during this time. He's also extremely sick both physically and mentally. It was said by Josephus, and I can't go into all the details, parents. If you want to ask me later, I don't mind telling you. But Herod became so ill by this time that the time that Jesus is born, that he is so sickened that literally he reeks so bad that no one can even be around him. He's disgusting as he is physically dying. His flesh is physically dying and rotting on his body. Herod becomes so frightened that he was afraid of a baby. The scripture tells us in Matthew chapter 2 that Herod had gotten wind of the baby and that a baby was being born in Bethlehem and that this baby was the true king of the Jews. This greatly troubled him because this was a threat to his power. So what does he do? He orders that all the boys under the age of two and in the Bethlehem and the surrounding regions, that they would be killed. So Jesus, the promised king, in a small town six miles from Jerusalem called Bethlehem, to a peasant teenager, an adoptive father, is born in the midst of dirt, animal feces, and he's laid in a manger, while Herod, a counterfeit king, a psychotic genius, sits on a throne with all of his wealth, with all of his accomplishments. And what is Herod? An Edomite. And an Edomite is the king of the Jews. Do you understand that tension? The older will serve the younger. And who's the king? The Edomite. The older brother is sitting on the throne while the younger brother is in a manger. Do you feel that tension this morning? The promise of God was, what, what are you doing, God? promise was is that the older will serve the younger, and yet you say you're going to lay waste all the Edomites. Their land will be just covered in the slain and blood. And yet when Jesus is born, the, the Edomite is on the throne. He's living in wealth. He's living in prosperity. 
can summons whatever he wishes and desires. He can marry whomever he wants to marry. He can have killed whomever he wants to have killed. Brothers and sisters, through the, the Christmas story, we are forced to come to grips with this tension. Will we trust the promises of God when it appears as though sin, Satan, and death are on the throne? Will we trust Jesus? Will we trust the promises of God? Later in Jesus' ministry, in Mark chapter 8, verse 15, he, he cautions the disciples. He's, he's sitting there, and they're talking about bread. I love how Jesus teaches, um, because I'm a visual learner. And they're sitting there, and they've got loaves of bread in their hands. And all of a sudden, like out of nowhere, it's like random thought Jesus. Jesus looks at his disciples, and he says this to them. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now the Herod that Jesus is talking about at this point, King Herod the Great is going to die, but one of his sons made it through. And that's the Herod that Jesus ends up standing up and talking to in his trial. I think it's Herod Antipas is his name. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. What is leaven, right? Leaven, for the most part, is once you open up a crack, open a, some bread, right? You're not like, oh, there's the leaven, are you? It is an invisible thing to many of us by the, by the naked eye when you just crack open that bread. But what does everybody know that has made that bread to rise? What has infiltrated itself, though you may not be able to see it, that leaven has infiltrated itself into all of that bread. In its entire existence, what made it rise, what made it expand, was something that if you crack open, you cannot see it, but you know the effects of it because it is everywhere inside of it. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, he is warning them against idols. He is warning them against lies. He is warning them against the hypocrisy driven by a, a worldly culture. He is warning them to not be deceived by self-centered, self-reliance preached by this culture. This is the temptation, is it not, of Christmas? Now, again, before you call me Scrooge, toward Christmas... I've been eating Christmas tree cakes since the first day of November. Our Christmas tree has been up since the second week of November. Christmas cookies were made before Thanksgiving. And I've already sat through a number of Hallmark-type movies that, just like my sermons, are exactly the same, except the titles are different. But during the first Christmas, during the first Christmas, it was not where treetops glisten and children listen to hear sleigh bells in the snow. No, it was a war. And that war for our affections is still taking place. 
it is still taking place. We tried to pretty up Christmas. If there's ever a season where we're on good behavior, I mean, anytime I flip on the news and it's like on Christmas and they tell me that somebody's like killed somebody or stolen something, I'm always like, that can't happen, it's Christmas. There's ever a time, though, that we pretty things up. Now, we like to polish the story. And like, I mean, I put on a tie today. It's during Christmas. It's during this time. There's a war that's taking place. And it's still taking place. Maybe not in the womb of a mom but in the womb of your heart. There is a war that is waging. In this season, we will, we will fight to sit on that throne. We will make it about us. Even we will make giving to others about us. We long for the perfect Christmas, an escape from reality, a comfort, a moment of peace, a break from labor. Instead of the eternal perspective, we, we live for the right now. Every time we are told to buy this and to buy that, we are really being encouraged to do is to put our hope and our trust in a king that will not deliver. Every time. It's the leaven of Herod. It is the leaven of the prince, not of peace, but the prince and the ruler of this world. And we're all buying it, hook, line, and sinker. I love this quote from Paul David Tripp in his um, come, let us adore him. It's an Advent devotional. I encourage you to get it. He says this, Unlike this false Christmas story, the true Advent story is humbling and unattractive. It's a sad story about the world terribly broken by sin, populated by self-rebels who are willing participants in their own destruction. It's about being created to live for God, but who in every way live for themselves. This story is about the dethroning of a the creator, and the enthroning of his creation. It's about conditions so desperate that God did the unthinkable, sending his son to be the sacrificial lamb of redemption. And why did Jesus come? Because we are so lost, so enslaved, so self-deceived, that there simply was no other. probably more than any other time in our calendar year, our affections are being stretched. Brothers and sisters, as one of my favorite Bible scholars says, kind of, he's a, kind of a Jewish historian, archaeologist sort of guy. He says, we believe Jesus is king with our minds, but in our hearts, Herod, is in control. Believe in Jesus with our minds. But in our hearts, Herod is in control. And you know who Herod is? Me. 
this morning, will you put your hope in the promises of God? When the younger, get this, so get this, Lord, help us to get this. Will you and I put our hope in the promises of God when the younger brother appears to be helpless and the older brother sits on the throne of this world? See, brothers and sisters, we must understand that Herod must be in this place at this time. Why? So that the nations would come to worship him. That's who the wise men are. And no, there was not three. There was a legion, there were tons of them. They're carrying very expensive things. Gifts fit for a king. They come because the wise men are the ones who always pronounce who is the king. And these wise men are believed to be like from Arabia and these sorts of places. And guess who they were at war with? The Romans. And so a group of people who you're typically at war with and are fighting show up and say, okay, who's the real king? We know he's here. We've got gifts for him. To Herod. But Herod had to be in this place. Why? Because the gospel is for the nations. And we see the first glimpse of the nations coming to Jesus, to a group of people who are going to be reading this, who are Jewish, who don't like the nations. And yet Matthew is already preaching that the nations will be glad at the person and work of Jesus. And the nations have already shown up. And also to fulfill the prophecies that the Messiah must go to Egypt, they need the money in order to go and do that. And so what's happened? The nations have just brought the funding gold, frankincense, and myrrh, not to rub all over their bodies, but to sell in order to sustain them while they're in Egypt. And why do they go to Egypt? Because God said they would. And Jesus is going to fulfill everything. Brothers and sisters, even when sin, Satan, and darkness reigns, may we be reminded that the rightful heir of the throne, Jesus, is in control. When all seems lost, when all seems dark, remember in the darkness, even the darkness serves the purpose of the promise. He serves the purpose. Even evil is used by God to accomplish His promise in Christmas reminds us every year that God is in control. That God is in control. So we're left with two responses this morning. Will you reject God's promised king? Or will you respond like Mary, Joseph, some shepherds and some wise men? And submit to the real king, Jesus. Whom will you serve? Whom will you live? Let's pray.